You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Today I want to preach on the subject of fasting for the life of the world. Fasting for the life of the world. Fasting, as you know, or maybe you don't, is its core, is the practice of not eating. It can be applied to other things like not looking at Facebook or Twitter, not drinking alcohol, etc. But in the Bible and in the Christian tradition, fasting means not eating food for a period of time to devote oneself to feasting on God. Feasting on God's presence in prayer. Fasting is coming to terms with the weakness and humility of our human condition and lovingly providing for those who are hungry and thirsty in our world. Fasting, the voluntary choice to not indulge our desires, is a very unpopular idea in the United States of America. (laughs) Let's just name the elephant of the room in a sermon about fasting. It's fasting. Because the vast majority of us Christians don't practice fasting. And to be honest, we wouldn't know how to explain exactly why we would practice fasting. I think, if I'm right. We know that Jesus fasted. We know that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, when you fast, just like he said, when you pray and when you give money to the poor. So unless we're going to say that we shouldn't pray or give money to the poor, then we can't say we shouldn't fast. (laughs) We know that the Israelites fasted. We know that Anna, the prophetess, fasted. We know that King David fasted when he said, I've humbled my soul with weeping and fasting. We know that the apostles fasted. Fasting is in our Bibles and in our tradition, but is it in us? We ain't so sure about it. America is the land of abundance, after all. The biggest economy, the biggest food, meat, industrial supply in the world. America is the land of craving and satisfying cravings. Our markets are called supermarkets because their selection is just super. You know, you get to choose between 10 types of Cheerios. Our buffets are called all you can eat. I can get on my phone right now onto, the, uh, onto a myriad of apps and I can have a hot plate of almost whatever kind of food I want delivered right here into this sanctuary if I got the cash. Indian, Chinese, Thai, Mexican, barbecue, pancakes, you name it. The craving spirit of this country seems almost unparalleled. That craving at its most basic level is yes for food, but it can also extend to the connection and distraction of social media. It can extend to sex via pornography or hookup apps. It can extend to media, shows and movies, on demand, streaming all the time, to streaming music, all of the music you could ever want. It's nice, but it's overwhelming, isn't it? The Proverbs in 25.16 say, If you've found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and you vomit it back up. American Christianity does not know how to be hungry, by and large. That comes from a pastor down in Virginia, Howard John Wesley. American Christianity does not know how to be hungry. But we understand under all the illusions of fullness, there is an emptiness and a gnawing dissatisfaction. I've also noticed, though, that fasting is on the uptick of conversation these days. 
within some parts of the culture. Just last year, I received a Facebook weight loss advertisement, which I'm like, what you trying to say, Facebook? About what's called intermittent fasting. You've heard of this? It's how the movie stars lose weight quickly for their next roles that they have to play. It's a form of dieting so that you can lose weight quickly, that you can meet that final body image that you have in your mind. Fasting is about your body image. Or maybe I've learned about another group, which are young technology moguls from Silicon Valley, who are practicing intermittent fasting because they've done studies of the kind of things it does for your brain. Kendall Vanderslice in her article says, in the startup world of Silicon Valley, fasting is aimed at the liberation of bodies from their natural limitations, such as mental fogginess, creative blocks, the need for rest, or the possibility of failure. For these engineers and CEO types, the human body is just another industry to disrupt. Whether completely abstaining from food or restricting a day's calories to an eight-hour window or tracking ketone levels in their blood, these faithful fasters strive to embrace the ethics of warriors or monks. Why? So that they can produce bigger results, so that their brains can have a bigger capacity, so that their companies can turn bigger profits. And both of these ideas of fasting in our culture right now, it is this, go beyond your limits so that you can reach your potential. Christian fasting in the tradition and in the Bible is this, know your limits, find your humanity, embrace your humility. In both of these ways of fasting that I talked about, it's ultimately ultimately directed at yourself. It's directed at your shape, the shape of your body, your productivity levels your brain, your mind, your company. And fasting, like many of our spiritual disciplines, is often painted in this narcissistic way. That it's about, you know, fasting is for those who are super Jesus people. It's for those who are super pious. It's for those who really want their blessing. But Pastor Russ, when we started this series on For the Life of the World, talked about how we can often spend the spiritual disciplines or the spiritual practices in this way, that it's for us. And for our blessing. But fasting, just like the rest of the practices, is for the life of the world. We are supposed to order our life in the world for the life of the world. Dr. Tony Evans says this. He says, we're living in a day when everybody wants to be blessed. But are the people who are asking for blessings simultaneously saying, Lord, I want to be a blessing for the blessing that I'm requesting. I want you to flow through and not just flow to. I want to be a benefit and not just a beneficiary. I want to be a conduit and not a cul-de-sac. In the Christian practice, fasting is a microcosm of the life of following Jesus. It's an act of worship of self-denial that is directed towards God and towards our neighbors. Fasting is for those who want to taste and see more of who God is. Fasting is for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice for our neighbors. And it is ultimately about denying ourselves. For the very life of the world. So I want to explore this briefly today. And I just want to break up the title of the sermon into two points. Fasting for the life of the world. So first, fasting. Jesus is in the desert wilderness in Luke chapter 4. And just to orient you to where this falls in the book of Luke. This has been preceded appropriately for us today by Jesus' baptism scene where the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove in bodily form, and a voice comes from heaven and it says, do you remember? It says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. 
And it is full of that same Holy Spirit that Luke tells us that Jesus is driven out into the wilderness. See this, people of God? You cannot go into the wilderness of self-denial without first bathing in the river of God's love. You have to know the ultimate love that speaks over your life before you can practice self-denial, before you can practice the disciplines, before you can practice fasting. You have to know that love that loved you first. You have to know that self-denial and fasting as we begin to talk about it is not something you do to prove to God that you're worthy of God's love. Fasting is what you do to abide more deeply and drink more deeply from the well that is God's love and to live more deeply in God's way. The text says that Jesus ate nothing during those days and when they were ended, he was hungry, of course. To be hungry at its root is to desire, isn't it? And in the midst of his fast, Jesus desired to satisfy the longing of his body. Because to be hungry is hard. And in the midst of that struggle of desire comes the temptation of the devil. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Satan says, in effect, you've got the power, Jesus. Say the word and it's yours. Now, don't wait. Don't strow restraint. Indulge yourself. The devil tempts Jesus through food, yes. But fundamentally, and he will tempt Jesus two more times in our scene in Luke 4. But fundamentally, this temptation and the two that follow us are about Jesus' appetites. They're about his appetites for food. They're about his appetites for power. They're about his appetites for privilege. And this is what Satan is testing Jesus on. But this isn't the first time in the story of the Bible that Satan has tempted somebody with food, is it? <laughs> if you remember the beginning of the Christian story of the Christian Bible, you remember that God made man and woman. He set him in a garden and he said, every tree that I've given you that is good for taste and good for eyes, you can have it all. God lays a feast before Adam and Eve. But he does also lay a fast before them, doesn't he? He says, you can feast from all the rest of these trees, but this tree over here, the knowledge of good and of evil, you should fast from that one. But of course, Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent in the garden, who says basically, go ahead, it looks good. <laughs> indulge your de desires, indulge your appetite. You know, you won't really die. God's just basically jealous of you. He doesn't want you to have every good thing. So, of course, Adam and Eve didn't want to wait. Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and desirable. Desirable, did you hear that? To make one wise. So she ate, and Adam joined in. And Adam sinned, and Eve sinned because they wanted all wisdom and authority. They wanted a full belly, the whole abundant goodness of creation, but without God. They wanted stuff for stuff's sake. They sinned because they grabbed for the feast. And they sinned because they didn't keep the fast. And as a result, the feast was taken away from them. God created us as hungry people to long and to desire and to hunger for good food and good stuff, yes. But our hunger for food and feasting and for stuff is to go beyond the mechanical desire for nourishment. 
Because our desire for these things, our taste of the goodness of creation, is meant to drive our hearts towards the source of all beauty, of all goodness. Food is a taste of the source of the one who is so good. (laughs) The material things that we delight in in life are to drive us to the source. And God intends our enjoyment of creation to be an opportunity to commune with him. But the devil removes God from the equation and makes it all about fulfilling our desires, whatever the cost. Peter Lightheart says, everywhere we turn, the world tells us not to keep the fast. Everywhere we turn, the world tempts us to be Adam. Our culture is devoted to stoking up our appetites and convincing us that we need to have it all. And we need to have it all yesterday. And we're fooling ourselves if we don't think we participate in that culture. I want to talk about a little bit of what the practice of fasting is for and what it does in our lives. Fasting reorders our loves. Fasting reorders our loves. Fasting and abstaining from food or whatever we choose to abstain from, but principally when I talk about fasting today, I want to talk about abstaining from food, reminds us to put things in their proper order. Because, listen, if all of creation, if food and drink and media and stories and books and gardens, if they aren't the primary source of goodness in our life, if they're the things through which we access the goodness of God, then fasting is withholding from those things so that we can return to the source of all goodness that we ultimately long for, which is the creator, the creator of all goodness, of all beauty. You might think that fasting in the Christian tradition, which is abstaining from things, devalues them. You might think it devalues food or devalues sex to wait to have sex or drink or money or material goods. No, but actually our faith puts things in a much higher place because it tells us that we weren't supposed to seek ultimate satisfaction from the stuff, from the food, from the delight, that all good things are only as as good and as if we find the presence of God in them. In fasting, we alter the order. Because we are often tempted to numb or satiate our core desires with food and with sex and with etc. And fasting, very quickly, we become consumed less and less with, with the things of this world. And fasting, we strip ourselves of fulfilling those other desires that we might return for, first to our core desire, which is for communion with God. So that's why fasting in the Bible is always linked with prayer. Because prayer is the ultimate expression of drawing near to God. In one sense, fasting is a kind of spiritual silence. That we silence the other uh, spiritual noises, physical noises in our life that we might attune to the presence of God. Maybe you, though, this morning can't remember, honestly, the last time that you truly felt in your soul a hunger for God. When was the last time that you hungered? for the presence of God, and had that kind of longing that Jesus talks about when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Or as the psalmist said in the 42nd Psalm, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, God. Panting for God's presence. Do you hear the physical and desirous language of that? Maybe worship for you and the gathering of the people of God feels like the biggest chore of your week. You get up on a day that you don't have to. You could just sit at home and relax. 
You don't have to go to work. You get yourself, or maybe you get your kids up and dressed. You get yourself here, and you sit through this 90 to 115 minutes of church. And many days, maybe you feel like, for what? We say it all over and over again that worship is supposed to be a feast. That's why it's centered around a table, the body and blood of Jesus. But maybe for you, worship just feels like grocery shopping and never like eating. I was talking the other day to one of the pastors, uh, one of the people who minister in our network, Andrew Russell, who works at Grace Downtown. And we were talking about this reality of how we often don't feel like worshiping when we come into worship. We were talking about this idea of worship as a feast. And he recounted this memory of his to me. He grew up in the Bahamas and remembers that every time his mama would take their big family to one of those buffet restaurants, all-you-can-eat buffet restaurants, she would line up the kids and she would look them all in the eyes. And before they went into that place to eat and drink, they, she said this. She said, now, boys, we came to this place to eat. So whatever you do, do not leave this place hungry. Get your fill plus some. This needs to carry you over with what I'm about to pay for. Do not leave this place hungry. Many of us don't experience the presence or hunger for God in our lives because we don't come hungry into God's presence. Why? Because we've satiated our desires with the myriad of other things that we fill our lives up with. Oftentimes, our life with God and our life with worship is like being invited to a great feast. Think a Thanksgiving feast or something like that that's going to have a scrumptious buffet, and we stop at McDonald's on the way and fill ourselves up with cheap food. So by the time we come to the feast, we just ain't that hungry. Do you see what I'm saying? Oftentimes in life, even when we come into the presence of God and his people, we don't come hungry because we haven't explored our own emptiness and the emptiness of those things we fill our lives with. Fasting as a rhythm, as a practice of abstaining is a way for us to create hunger within ourselves, uh, which we feel deep down in our belly. And this way of regular fasting is is a practice to actually feel hunger, which is to actually know what Jesus is saying here, that we don't live by bread alone. We are dependent creatures. We have weak bodies. If we stop eating, we start starving. We are weak people. Michael Oh, a Korean missionary who's the, now the president of the Luzon movement of uh, missions, says this when he fasts. He says, when he fasts and feels the hunger in his belly, he prays to God, with this same hunger, let me hunger for you. Fasting begins to cultivate in us a desire for God. Fasting, though, also helps us to see our desires clearly And to begin to know that ultimately our desires do not have ultimate power over us. So maybe you can't remember the last time that you hungered and thirsted for God. But also maybe you can't remember the last time that you didn't follow your desires. Maybe you feel addicted and driven by your desires in life. Maybe you don't remember the last time you actually resisted a desire. Reoriented and retrained it. 
Richard Foster, in his great book, Celebration of Discipline, he says this, Our human cravings and our desires are like rivers that tend to overflow their banks. Fasting help keep, helps keep them in the proper channels. I've been having water problems in my house, okay? What I've discovered, I, I just bought this house in September, and I've already had three episodes with water. The first one was the bathtub upstairs, the overflow valve, it was non-existent. It just flowed right into the ceiling, and so water, when my kids were in the bathtub, water began to rain down all through my kitchen one day when they were splashing. And then I also had my basement flood <laughs> two months ago. And then I also have my front roof under my front porch, which is beginning to sag under the weight of water that shouldn't be there. See, water is good in your house as long as it stays in the places where it needs to stay. Human desire is good as long as it stays in the channels in which it needs to stay. But human desire, as you and I know, often tends to not do that, isn't it? Our desires begin to overtake us. And we live in an age of sensation when people think that if they feel something in their body or think something in their mind that they need to follow that desire or thought. I must buy this now. I must take this pleasure for myself now. I must eat or drink this now. I must view this thing now. Our people in our culture say that this is liberation, to be able to do what you desire. And in fact, in one sense, when we think about in, in situations of oppression, it is not being able to do what you ultimately want or desire. But in most of life, it is not, in fact, liberation to be freed to do what we desire because we are chained to our desires. Paul says in the book of Philippians, when he's talking about people who don't believe in God, he says that their God is their belly. Their appetites are what dictate where they're going in life. And that's why fasting at its core gets to the appetites in our gut. Because we are to see when we fast what it is that we really desire. Because those desires will come to the surface. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. He also says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the way of temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Do you remember the last time you actually resisted a desire? As we are trained to be those who love God and love neighbor, it involves God retraining our very desires. And fasting is the core practice of Christian desire for God. Fasting provides clarity, as I already said. And that's why you see in the Bible that fasting is, yes, it's linked with prayer. It's linked with humility. But it's also linked in moments where we don't know what to do. That's why you see in the book of Acts, after Jesus ascends to heaven, the disciples are fasting during times of making decisions for the church during times of making decisions in their own lives. Because fasting clarifies desires and longings. When we pay attention to the desire for food, it makes us aware of the other longings that we have. Longings that may, might indeed be selfish and fearful instead of righteous and just. And I think what happens in the Bible is that at times of emergency or times of indecision, fasting is what is prescribed. Because, again, it provides clarity. It silences the noises in our life. 
Fasting is also for our own humility, as I said. It's to know our dependence upon God. And so that's why humility is often linked with fasting. Because when we humble, when we fast, we recognize how weak we are. When we fast and try to fast, we recognize how often we fail at fasting. And how much lack of a desire we have for the things that God wants for our life. Fasting shows us how weak and self-interested we really are. But fasting, ultimately, as we see in our passage and in the way of the Christian faith, is not ultimately just for our own spiritual good. It's not only for our own piety or our own growth in God. It is for the very life of our world. Fasting is for the life of the world. So back to our scene. In the midst of Jesus' hunger, he is tempted by the devil, and he is tempted to do what? He is tempted to repeat the sin of Adam and Eve. Satan says, if you'll just do this, if you'll just bow to me, you can have the things that you want. You can have life apart from God. But Jesus is the last and second Adam because he keeps the fast. Jesus entered into a world no longer a garden but a howling waste And in that wilderness, Satan tempts Jesus to break the fast, to be an Adam. You're hungry. Eat this now. You deserve the accolades of the crowd. You can have it now. Jump off the temple. You want all authority in heaven and on earth, but your father won't give it to you unless you suffer an excruciating, shameful death. You can have it all now. No cross, no self-denial required. It's yours. You only need to do a little bit of bowing to me. Life, glory, power, everything you want, everything you deserve, you can have it now. But Jesus refused. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 and says, Man shall not live by bread alone. He says, Ultimately, I don't find who I am, the source of my life and sustenance, just from what's on my plate, just from what's in my bank account, just from what other people say about me or what accolades I have. But Jesus keeps the fast. He, he waited. He labored. He suffered. He died. And then he opened his hands to receive all the life and glory and honor in the feast of his resurrection. He kept the fast, and as a result, he was admitted to the fullness of God's feast that he brings us into and invites us into. His desires were not bent towards himself. In just our Old Testament passage today, which was our also a passage we focused on a few weeks ago, we see that we can fast, but we can do it for selfish reasons. Just as Isaiah said, you fast, but in your fasting, you seek your own good and you quarrel. Which you quarreling comes from focusing on your own desires. But the fast that Jesus enacted on our behalf could be described by Isaiah 58. Is this not the fast that I choose? Think about the Lord Jesus in this. To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. To break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? Remember when he turned the three loaves into feeding 5,000? He shared his bread with the hungry. Is it not to bring the homeless poor into your house? Jesus said, I am preparing a place for you. When you see the naked, to cover him. To not hide yourself from his own flesh. And then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall speed up springily. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted. 
Jesus poured his life out for those of us who are spiritually a hungry people. Jesus said one time when his disciples thought he would be hungry, they thought he would be starving in John chapter 4, and they said, hey, Lord, we brought you some food. And he says, I have food and drink you don't know about. (laughs) He says, my food and drink is to do the will of the one who sent me. And that is the picture of Jesus' fast. What could be more like the life of Jesus than the practice of fasting? Jesus fasted so that we might feast. Augustine said this in his sermon on fasting. He said, What mercy could be greater, so far as we poor wretches are concerned, than that which drew the Creator out of the heavens down from heaven, clothed the Maker of the earth with earthly vesture, made Him who is eternally remains equal to His Father, equal to us in mortality, and imposed on the Lord of the universe the form of a servant, so that He, our bread, might hunger." that he, our fulfillment, might thirst, that he, our strength, might be weakened, that he, our health, might be injured, that he, our life, might die. Augustine said, Jesus did all of this to satisfy our hunger, to moisten our dryness, to soothe our infirmity. Jesus fasted so that we might feast, people of God, but we fast so that others might feast. And in doing so, we become like little images of Jesus to a watching world. So we see in Isaiah 58, and we see in the Christian tradition, that fasting is not just about piety. It is not just about growing in God. Fasting is about justice in the world. Do you see that in Isaiah 58? Because here's the reality. When you and I's desires are only bent towards ourselves or our own people, our desires are fundamentally selfish. We don't know how to go without. And when we don't know how to go without, who loses? Those who are truly going without. Fasting and justice relate directly. Do you see that? In our society, when speaking of the gross inequalities of wealth and education and food, the Christian tradition leads us in this direction. That the aim of us in our lives is to go without so that others may simply go with. As the phrase says, live simply so that others may simply live. So many of our societal problems can be traced fundamentally to a lack of self-control, to a lack of self-denial in our society. America teaches that if you can justifiably say it's yours, then it's yours for the taking, and so take. No matter how many are going without, no matter the hunger that is obviously before us, we like to trumpet this vision of an abundant land. And it's often said that the result of poverty is the lack of self-control of the poor. But in the Bible, the, the, ultimately the source of poverty is the lack of self-control of the rich. Do I need to say that again? In our society, it's often said that poverty is because the poor people lack self-control. But in the Bible, the majority of the time, poverty results from the rich people lacking self-denial. That is why the scriptures often link poverty and injustice like they do in Isaiah 58. What is the prescription for a people who are selfish? It's to feed those who don't have bread. It's to shelter those who don't have shelter. Oh, I'm getting passionate, sorry. (laughs) In his article, uh, in his article called To Fast Again, this man named Eamon Duffy, he's, he's writing about how this practice of fasting has largely faded from the practice of our churches, hasn't it? And I'm just being real, Mosaic. I mean, I'm a, it's faded. I wasn't raised to fast. 
No one in my seminary ever gave me a lecture on fasting. Do you hear that? I went to theological education for three years, and I never heard a sermon on fasting. It has faded from our practice, but in its fading, we've lost something as the people of God. In Eamon Duffy, in his article, he says this, What is at stake in the church not fasting is the church's prophetic integrity. What is at stake is the church's claim to solidarity with the poor. Consider from this perspective, fasting and abstinence practiced regularly by the people of God and in common was a recognition of the church that identification with the poor and hungry was what the life of Jesus was all about. Because Jesus said, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who hunger. In losing the practice of fasting, the church has lost the experience of what it feels like to be hungry. And we've lost solidarity in the world with those who are actually hungry. And when you lose solidarity with those who actually hunger, your desire to fulfill their needs is much weakened. Because you can't empathize anymore. All you know is what it feels like to be full. Or at least the illusion of fullness in your life. But the practice of fasting recovered is to teach us how to be a hungry people again. And that's why Duffy says, The church has always linked our own personal fasting and the search for our own holiness with the demand for mercy and justice to the poor. The trilogy of prayer and fasting and giving to the poor money is both fundamental and structural. And this is the practice that we, I think, in this time are called to recover, people of God. Because when we aren't prepared to go without at any moment, it is unlikely that we will live lives of justice. This starts in kindergarten, when there's a line forming for the water fountain. This goes to, even now, when someone puts out a buffet of food, do you have to be the first one in line? I'm asking myself this. Because I can often operate when a buffet of food comes out with a mindset of scarcity. Am I going to get mine if I don't go ahead and take it? Do you see that fundamental mindset of scarcity? That is what the practice of fasting is meant to break us of. Because it teaches us that, no, we will be okay. We can go without. Because God provides for us even beyond what we think we physically need. Fasting teaches us that we don't live by bread alone. We don't live by stuff alone. We don't live by sex alone. We don't live by sensation alone. It is is better to hunger and thirst for righteousness than just for food. Fasting trains us simply to go without. And so one practice that has always accompanied fasting in the Christian tradition is this is that as, as we withhold from feeding ourselves, we are to feed others. We aren't supposed to use that as an opportunity to hoard up our own food or our own money. We're supposed to use that time as an opportunity to spend what we would have on ourselves by meal or by food to provide for those who are actually hungry in our world. And there are many in our actual zip code who are hungry people of God, who are hungry this morning, who are malnourished this morning, We fast because Jesus fasted so that we may feast. And when we fast, the purpose of it is for us to feast on Jesus. And so I just want to end uh, this sermon with some practical considerations on the practice of fasting. Fasting is a form of bodily training for our whole selves, going without food. It's a form of training for our mind and body and soul 
And so just like you wouldn't walk into a CrossFit gym if you weren't quite a member of CrossFit and go into an advanced workout, or just like I wouldn't go to my wife's hot yoga workout uh, and assume I knew what I was doing, so we have to ease ourselves into the practice of fasting. There are options and degrees of fasting. Skipping one meal on a day, skipping two meals on a day, skipping three meals on a day, and then multiple days. So I encourage you to, to start small and to build, to build from there. Drink lots of water. Stay hydrated. There are ways of fasting. You can practice just a water fast. You can practice a water and juice fast, a bread and water fast. And some of you who are nursing mothers, of course, will know that you can't fast. Some of you who have health conditions, you should not do a total fast. Talk to your doctor. But find another way of fasting. If you can't fast from food, maybe you can fast from sweets or something else. And the model of fasting is that we are to use those skipped meal times for prayer, to deepen our prayer life, and to feed the hungry, as I already said. But Jesus cautions us on using our fasting as a virtue signal. He says, when you fast, don't walk around looking all gloomy. And if you got to pick something off the ground, be like, oh, what's wrong? I'm fasting today. I'm suffering for God. I'm out here being holy. Jesus said, if you do that, you'll have your reward. And your reward is just the praise of other people. But Jesus said, when you fast, anoint your face with oil which is a way of saying, anoint yourself with the joy of the Spirit of God because it is a joy to feast on God and to draw near to God. So don't call attention to yourself. Don't be irritable. As Isaiah said, the people liked to hit each other when they were fasting, probably because they were a little frustrated. They had empty bellies. I want to invite you all in a, really, a very real way in this upcoming Lenten season which begins on Ash Wednesday, the 25th. This has always been, for the church, the great season of fasting because Easter is the great feast. And in Christian spirituality, we feast and we fast and we feast. The fast prepares us for the feast. It deepens our enjoyment of the feast. It has taught us when we fast throughout Lent that we don't live by bread alone. And it teaches us the abundance of God's feast and the resurrection. So, we, the elders of the church, want to invite you, the people of God, to fast with us on Wednesdays and Fridays during the Lenten season and ease into that practice with us. And we'll start that on Ash Wednesday, the 25th. And we'll see what God does and how he meets us as a community as we recover this practice together. And it's what will prepare us for the feast of Easter together. So those are some practical considerations. I'll send out some, some writing uh, in the coming weeks to prepare us for Lent. But as we do that, just remember, as I close out this sermon today, that you can't go into the desert of self-denial without first bathing in the river of God's love. We fast in response to the gracious love that God has shown us. We fast because we want to taste and see in a more real way that God is good, that he is our provider, he is our sustainer. Amen. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.